Welcome to The Other Coast, the Malifaux podcast out of Southern California. My name is Colgan, and joining us today, as usual, is Jeff. Hey, Colgan. Hey, Jeff. So today, um, I'm doing the introduction because I guess I'm going to be interviewing you about the December Faux tournament on Vassal. Wait, it's December Faux, yeah? Yeah, yeah. The world's all upside down. Now you're in charge. You control all the topics, and I just have to sit here and give you the answers you want, or you're going to mute my mic. Oh, wait, you're muting my mic? <laughs> Anyways, um, so yeah, I, I guess to start off, for everyone that's not aware, you can give us a little introduction about what December Faux is and what Vassal is for people who might not understand the connection. Sure. So we're recording this uh, right after round one, but probably by the time it's released, the event will have ended. So December Faux was a three-round Vassal event, and, and Vassal is a way to play Malifaux over the internet. So because it's played uh, over the internet, we have, or not we, they, the tournament organizers, managed to get people all over the world to play each other. And while that may lead to some scheduling complications, it really opens up the range of people uh, that you'll get to see, because obviously... If you're in California, like we are, it's not going to be very many Australian or UK players walking in to join us for casual Malifaux Wednesdays or Saturdays. So uh, it's been um, really interesting to see how they play in other places. I guess was that one of your motivations for signing up? Because I, I know in the past you've had some issues with Vassal itself. Did you did you kind of overcome that so you could you know start playing with people from other parts of the world and see what their meta is like? I wouldn't say I overcame it so much as I accept it for what it is i just like, even after having done this i wouldn't say that i enjoy playing vassal it, you know i'm on the swamp fiends discord which by the way if you guys aren't on it i would definitely recommend it because it's really active and a lot of fun and there's almost always people trying to find games and i rarely find that i volunteer even though uh, i would be up for playing malifaux probably but i just i don't like the vassal experience very much i guess i get more from the kind of tactile pushback than i thought i did and also, I just—I I don't know, the interface just doesn't appeal to me. I just don't have very much fun on Vassal comparatively. So I don't want to, uh, be, because <laughs> because of the, uh, as you know, right, because you're there too, the ranks of our local meta have thinned quite a bit. COVID has kept a lot of people away, understandably. And some other mm -hmm. people, you know, they maybe jumped to Warhammer for a while or, you know, they're doing other things. There hasn't been as much variability in our local Malifaux. I mean, I can only play you so many times, right? <laughs> after after a while i've had enough easy wins so i um we're shit talking now <laughs> so i i think that's i i was just kind of going malifaux stir crazy uh and i think that's probably why i signed up okay okay so i i guess now you've played one round so far that's correct yeah we just finished the first round and i think pairings for the second round have actually just come out but i haven't really um bothered to check all right, all right. So I guess then we can dive in a little bit and maybe get in some information about your first game and I guess the experience overall. First of all, who is your opponent and where did they hail from? So they had actually posted the pairings several days, maybe even a week in advance, or they post the pairings and then you have a week to set it up. I I, I forget, but you have um you have time in between learning who you're going to play and what the scheme pool is and everything like that. Oh, okay. So I actually knew that my opponent would be uh, Ollie Hedges from uh, the UK. He's, if you are new to Malfo, maybe you're not really familiar with the name, but if you've been playing for a while and consuming other Malfo meta, uh, you'll know that he's a very successful player from the UK meta. Been on third floor wars a couple times. And so, you know, I, I knew that he was going to be very strong. And I was just looking forward to playing someone who I had uh, heard on a podcast. So did you have like any nerves going into it or was it just you went in with the underdog mindset like well if I win this will be amazing if I lose this is kind of expected? I wouldn't say nerves so much as I went in realizing I'd be playing against someone who had played more than I had which you know again in my local meta isn't isn't the case I, I have the most experience of, of the players um, in our group now that, that doesn't mean I'm the best player but it, it, it means that um, I have that kind of familiarity advantage and in this case i knew that wouldn't be true okay so then i guess once you saw the strategy and schemes did that in 
Well, I guess you select a faction first, right? For the most tournaments? Yeah, when you... Well, so the way they have this set up, and I think most live tournaments are, are similar, uh, you had to declare the faction that you were going to rep uh, during the tournament, and you could switch masters or leaders each round, but you had to stay within the same faction. And for Decemberfoe, I picked 10 Thunders because um, my intention was to run the Crossroad 7 for all three rounds, and I was going to use Lust as my leader, mostly because of the Shadow uh, Effigy. Oh, okay. So so I guess in that case, were you planning on just running like a set crew into every strat and scheme you had? like, Or were you actually going to change out some of your versatile options or not actually take all of the Crossroad 7? Oh, no, I was definitely going to take all the Crossroad 7. I mean, that was kind of the point. The real variability was whether or not I would stick the upgrade on the effigy every time. And I think I would expect to stick it on every time. But if the pool had hidden martyrs in it, that would be, I think, the strongest motivation to not include it. Because then, you know, you might consider having it on the effigy and one of the one of the band members. Uh, and if the effigy were the one that you ended up sacrificing to hidden martyrs, it wouldn't be you wouldn't also be throwing away the upgrade. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I really like cross-factional type things. And also I kind of had the expectation that if I played Crossroad 7 at the, at our, at our local meta, first of all, it would be quite demanding on a lot of our players because they wouldn't really know what the models are. Mm -hmm. So it would be difficult for them to play against. And also, you know, we, again, we have a lot of newer players and, uh, not because I'm a brilliant player, but just because I have that experience over them, I have a pretty significant advantage. So I felt like I would not maybe learn as much about running them as I could against wider competition. Okay, so it sounds like kind of been wanting to play Crossroads Sevens for a while, and then this tournament was just like a great opportunity to kind of stress test them and see if they actually had any play within like the larger meta of Malifaux. Yeah, I've played them twice before. Uh, the first time against Jim where he beat me with Wong. He, like, totally melted me with, uh, you know, shockwaves and stuff. And actually, that's the game where uh, I could have tied it in the end by delivering a message, but I made a second melee attack <laughs> instead. <laughs> you know, because I'm just, I'm always doing that kind of stuff. And then the second time, uh, I forget who it was, but uh, it was against one of our newer players. And it actually, that was the game that really drove home to me, the fact that I can't play a crew like the Crossroad 7 against an inexperienced player. Because they are not going to be able to keep track of all the effects that are on the board. And if I really, if I use them, uh, it's going to be just a really punishing experience for them. And if I don't use them, I'm not really learning anything. And also, because the models themselves aren't very strong, if I, if I don't really utilize what they have, I'm going to get beat pretty badly. And so it's not really going to provide anyone with a fun game. Right, right. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So then I, I guess to kind of reset everything so basically you're joining this tournament to stress test the crossroads seven and because you wanted to basically use all seven of them all the time your crew list isn't really changing from round to round based on the schemes and strategies correct that's right so i guess going into this first game once the strategies and schemes were revealed did you feel like you had a decent chance at i guess taking the game or do you feel like the crossroads seven would actually play well into the strategies and schemes no not at all this was a terrible pool for them <laughs> <laughs> um so for those of you who are not really familiar with the crossroads seven they are seven henchmen all the factions except the explorer society have one and they're all named after the grievous sins it's an interesting crew idea uh they're from second edition in second edition wrath the neverborn uh member had to be your leader in third edition, now with the keyword system, you could have any of them be your leader. In reality, only really Pride, which is the outcast one, he's he's the best. Uh, Lust and Envy are really great leader choices. And your leader choice really comes down to which one you want to have the third AP, which upgrades you want to have access to, and which effigy you want. Uh, and I ultimately settled on Lust because of the strength of the Shadow Emissaries, or Shadow Effigies, Conceal Aura. Lust generally is quite useful for a lot of positioning effects, but also because Pride is the best model, I didn't want to make him also the leader and really just put all my eggs in one basket. So that is why I ended up going with Lust. But the pool was very punishing. Um, one of the schemes in it was catch and release, and I can't declare it because 
yeah, I mean, it's just not really viable for me. Whereas all my guys, except for my totem, are henchmen. So it's super easy for anyone to score cats release against me. Um, strategies recover evidence. Uh, they're not really a great fighting crew. Some of the other scheme choices were fine for for the Crossroads 7, but it definitely wasn't a favorable pool for them. So, so then when you say that they're not much of a fighting crew, where do you think the strength in the Crossroads 7 actually lies? So... You know, if I had to grade them as a, a crew, you know, as though they were a, a, a keyword with a master, you know, using kind of like the A to F scale, you know, they're, they're, they're a B, like a B minus type crew. They have a lot of effects that kind of interlock with each other. Um, generally, when you do something that's normally advantageous for you, you gain sin tokens. And then in the future, if you do it again, a Crossroads member could cancel that and, and gain that benefit or a like benefit. Uh, instead so for instance sloth if you're one of your guys heals near him you get a sin token and then in the future if one of your guys with a sin token heals i can instead spend that sin token and have one of my other people heal so they're they're good at kind of um nibbling around the edges they're definitely an attritional based crew mm-hmm. but they also a lot of people aren't really very familiar with them and because they do have a lot of these overlapping effects they can create a, a reasonably potent bubble and there is a lot of uh, a lot of things for your opponent to keep track of, which doesn't mean to do gotchas, right? Neither me nor my opponent Ollie did gotchas, and we were both, uh, I think, I think pretty gracious in terms of reminding the other about pertinent abilities. But even with sincere, friendly reminders, the mental load of oh, if I do this, I'll get a sin token, or if I do this, uh, and he has the sin token already, can be discarded to cancel or, or whatever. It can, I think complicate matters for the opponent and that's probably their strength the fact that they just have a lot going on it sounds like they can have a pretty strong situational denial game and it seems like yeah just the mental load like sure you're never going to do gotchas but there's going to be times where you place and just completely forgot that you know they can just deny it by discarding a sin token and it's kind of too late to go back or change your plan at that point right right and their big drawback, uh, well, I mean, they have a couple, but the, the biggest complicating factor in this game is really that they're all very fragile models. Mm-hmm. Except for Wrath and Envy, none of them have a defense except manipulative. So your order of activation is very important. They're just henchmen with seven wounds in a couple cases. A couple of them have eight wounds, but they cannot take a hit. So into a killy pool, and this, uh, you know, this was um, Recover Evidence with Assassinate, so... There was kind of a lot of incentive to to kill and a lot of potential to score off killing. I I knew that was going to be something that I was going to struggle with all game. And in fact, I did. Okay, so then I I guess now is probably a good time to ask about your opponent. So which faction did he declare and which master did he end up bringing to this, I guess, kill pool? So he declared Arcanist. uh, And once he declared Arcanist, you knew I I knew it was either going to be Colette or Sandeep. And it was Colette. And he brought basically, you know, the kind of Colette list that you have to expect to see. Colette super friends with the duet, the Soul Soul Minor with the the upgrade for the seventh card, the Mechanical Writer, and the Arcane Emissary. So quite a small crew. He, uh, in fact, had to uh, start the duet as two individual models so that I wouldn't be able to place one of the strategy markers just on on the center line. (laughs) <laughs> yeah he and and you know because colette has got those three doves he had a good amount of activations but it's a very small very elite crew anyone who is you know been watching colette at tournaments or or on on vassal um or who plays colette will be very familiar with with what was across the table okay so then i i guess knowing that it sounds like maybe your expectations for the game were a little bit pessimistic since it sounds like you feel like your crew is not well equipped for the scheme pool and it seems like looking at the very elite crew that your opponent brought he's probably geared a little bit more towards killing your guys and picking up those markers yeah going into it i understood that because of presto changeo my opponent is basically going to have a pick a model and delete it capability uh and that's mm-hmm. going to be his goal right he's going to grab a model of presto changeo swap it into the middle of his crew uh, and murder it. Um, and and really, there's not a serious way to absolutely prevent that. Mm-hmm. Even for my models that have manipulative who haven't acted, 
Uh, and even if they're sitting in concealment, either because of terrain or because of the shadow effigies conceal aura, you know, that's two minus flips. A focus and a stone will get him to a straight flip, and you just need to tie to Presto Changeo, mm-hmm. which at stat six, he can tie any of my people at, at, at the exact same card. None of my people have willpower seven. So as long as he has that 13 or that red joker, it is impossible for me to prevent it. And I understood that going in, and so my goal was really to try to make it so that he didn't have great choices or or to kind of try to influence the Presto Changeo targets that he would have. And I kind of thought that my only real chance of success in the game would be if I managed to get him to, to kind of pick the quote-unquote wrong models. So I, I guess on that note, I, I didn't think about till right now, but... After you knew he declared Colette, did you think about taking the, I forget the name of it, but there's the 10 Thunders upgrade that turns off resistance triggers. What's that ever consideration for maybe just trying to knock off Colette early? So I didn't. It's called Masked Agent, I I believe. I think it is Masked Agent. Yeah, because Train Ninja is the stealth one and um, the other one is the one with hard to kill and challenge. Mm-hmm. Defender. Oh, yeah, Silent Protector. Yeah, Silent Protector, right. Yeah, so Masked Agent. Uh, I didn't. I have taken it before. Uh, the reason I, I didn't is because I took the upgrade on the effigy. And again, because all my guys are henchmen and their only defense in most cases is manipulative, I need those stones. And I didn't feel like I could go down to four stones. Mm-hmm. I could have maybe not taken the upgrade on the effigy, but I thought I would get more out of that than turning off Colette's berry. With that, like, I guess during the game, did you change your decision? Do you think it might have been better to try and take that upgrade and kill it? Or do you think that it was still the right decision? to put the upgrade on the effigy to grab the emissary later in the game to try and turn things in your favor with the emissary oh yeah no i I definitely think it was the right decision to not take it um my goal wasn't really to attack colette which i actually did have assassinate so it sounds funny to say my goal wasn't to attack colette but (laughs) but I, i i had taken assassinate with the expectation or at least the hope of scoring it through non-defense attacks hmm if if the crossroads seven have an ability to just do damage to people if they have a sin token uh and that's a tactical hmm. action and there's no test for it so it's not possible to do that they have a number of willpower attacks which she can declare her trigger on willpower but it's not built in mm-hmm. and i yeah I, I just i didn't think it was really going to be worth it the crew doesn't have enough direct hitting power to really wipe her off the board and i didn't mm-hmm really see myself as being the aggressor anyways i was really hoping to kind of survive his his uh presto changos and then bring it into an attritional style game that was how i thought my best chance for winning would be i i guess if you have your strategy for presto change where it's basically trying to present unappealing targets so who were you trying to get presto change and then i guess what was your strategy for kind of staying alive and surviving the assault from the other models he chose to take within his crew sure well so for the outside i should just say like ollie won seven to one right so it wasn't really, <laughs> wasn't really a close game so you could definitely like when you when when you listen to me talk about my my strategy you can definitely come away with maybe the thought that my strategy wasn't well founded i you know you go ahead and listen and, and make your own make your own decisions um we'll get you know we'll get to kind of the results later but i i in no way and holding this episode out as a clinic on how to run the crossroad seven. <laughs> that being said, uh, my goals were to have him try to grab envy and wrath. They are the two models that have defenses that are not based on manipulative. Envy has armor two, <laughs> and he doesn't really have ignore armor options. And wrath has terrifying eleven. Now eleven isn't super high, but it's not nothing, right? So mm-hmm. those were the two that I really wanted him to grab over over the other models ordinarily gluttony would also be pretty high up on my list because i don't really care about him very much mm-hmm. and greed also uh would be pretty high on my list of sacrificial models gluttony and greed are the two i mean i wouldn't say worse but they're kind of situational in the full crossroad seven crew and if this weren't recover evidence if they didn't have evidence markers i wouldn't really mind losing that that much but also he had he had Diesel Engine on the uh, Arcane Emissary. He had Soulstone Cash on the Mechanical Rider. So because he had a bunch of models that had upgrades and several models that could use Soulstones, Greed, who's normally a pretty kitty corner model, uh, had more utility than normal. So generally when I play Crossroads 7, I'm really just trying to protect Lust, 
greed, and sloth. Those are the three that really form the core triumvirate. And greed and gluttony are usually sacrificial, and envy and wrath are important, but not as important as lust, pride, and sloth. And I actually did manage to successfully get him to grab Envy at first. Um, He pulled Envy in turn one. Envy took a bunch of hits. He lived. Turn two, I I pulled him out and healed him a bunch, and Envy would end up surviving the game. And I actually, after turn one ended, I thought thought turn one went reasonably as well as I could have expected for me. Mm -hmm. You you know, with Colette, with the mechanical rider, he basically was going to be able to be in range to grab anyone that he wanted. And he ended up grabbing Envy, so I thought, you know, mission accomplished. Now, it's dicey sending Envy in. Even with Armor 2 and Stones, uh, his survival's not assured at all. With, with slightly worse flips in either direction, you know, if I do a little bit worse on defense and he does a little bit better on attack, or, you know, if I if I don't stone for moderate, if I stone for weak or whatever, you know, Envy can definitely die in that situation. So uh, I can't say that he made a mistake by pulling in Envy, but having him pull in Envy and having Envy survive was kind of my goal for the turn or you know that's what i thought would happen if things went reasonably well for me sorry if you actually clarified this earlier but so the schemes you took were assassinate and what was the other scheme oh uh, leave your mark because i'm a bubble crew i figure if i can sit in the middle the arcane effigy has a way to force interacts uh, so even if they're engaged they could do it gluttony his his little sin power is when someone else tries to to interact, he can instead drop a scheme worker. So I have ways to drop scheme workers outside of engagement, or, or sorry, while engaged. Mm-hmm. So I thought, leave your mark. If I could get a scrum in the center, uh, I'm that's something I might be able to score eventually. That that was my hope. Okay, so it sounds like at the end of turn one, while you know you weren't in a super great position because um, envy was still out of place, but it sounds like it was more or less going according to what you planned. And then turn two, it seems like, you know, you pulled Envy out and healed him. And did anything else happen in turn two? Or did that also kind of go more or less like you expected it to? I know turn two actually ended up being super significant. Now, the thing is, when I say, like, my plan was for Envy to get grabbed, I mean, it's not like, ha, you you uh, you found my trap card or whatever from Yu-Gi-Oh. Um, <laughs> you know, I knew he was able to get someone. I was hoping, I figured Envy had the best chance of success and was likely to absorb the most of his resources. So that's why I kind of wanted it to be Envy. Mm-hmm. But even even with him grabbing Envy, what happened with the turn was he grabbed Envy and then wailed on it with like all of his people. So Envy was in a terrible situation. And because it was Pesto Changeo and his stuff was so far away, I didn't really get to put in any damage on him at all. So he just got a free turn of wailing on one of my important models. So even mm-hmm. though like I kind of managed what I thought was a reasonably positive result for me, it was still a... Like, it still set me back quite a ways. Right. But in turn two, he ends up grabbing Wrath and sending him into the middle of the crew. Uh, Now, my crew is advanced quite a bit. And this is, you know, this is a bit of an aside. But one of the big advantages Colette has that I think might be hard to understand and that uh, you don't really hear really laid out clearly is that because of the way Presto Changeo works, she's going to grab one of your models and stick it in the middle of her crew. And then her crew... Doesn't have to waste any AP to get to you. He's just going to charge immediately and just like beat the crap out of you. Whereas your crew, you know, you're still near your deployment zone after turn one, right? So you have to spend all this extra AP walking up to try to, you know, support this model that's grabbed into the middle of his crew. Or even if you're willing to write that model off, you still got to walk up to to play the game, right? You got to walk up to solve your schemes. You got to walk up to attack their models, whatever. So... It, it just it provides him with so much efficiency. So a lot of my turn two was spent uh, moving to try to get up to a position to where I could do something. And so he managed to grab Wrath and stick Wrath in the middle of the crew after I, I pulled Envy out. And, you know, Wrath is, again, one of these models I kind of mentioned is a bit more survivable. And Wrath was doing okay until he managed a severe damage on a negative flip with the Arcane Emissary. Now, when I say this, it sounds like, oh, such a tragic event. But the reality is the math is probably something like 10% likelihood on that, on a fresh deck. And so 10%, yeah, it's it's not common, but it's not, you know, it's not a blue moon by, by any stretch. So when he did that, he did six points to Wrath, who I was really hoping would be able to absorb more actions or even 
like maybe even survive the turn. But Wrath ended up taking a lot more damage from that action than I expected, and I only stoned away one damage. And so he was able to kill Wrath turn two pretty early, like just with the Arcane Emissary and I think maybe one of the duets to activations. That's all it took. So it left him with a lot of other AP to redeploy his his pieces, you know, to, to move them up, to support Colette, who was a bit a bit forward because of her Presto Changeo on turn one. And so Wrath dying as quickly as he did ended up being really significant in, in terms of throwing my my plans out the window. So then were you actually able to like, I guess, score any of your schemes in turn two, or is it still just setting up and trying to like, I guess, sit in for the end game? Yeah, turn two was uh, mostly set up. I was able to uh, put down some damage and, and put down some scheme, uh, a sin token. So this is the thing with the crossroad seven, you really have to get your sin token engine going. And I had played a game, uh, wasn't for the tournament, it was just a uh, a game with someone else against actually another Colette list that was very similar. Mm-hmm. I did better than I did in, in this game, but I, st- I still lost it. And the takeaway I had from that game was that I had to start my sin engine uh, sooner. So when I played this game, uh, what I did is I was more aggressive in positioning the crossroad seven. And so I was able to start uh, sin token proliferation on turn two. Mm-hmm. And I think if Wrath had survived, or at least if, if my opponent had had to dedicate more to killing him, you know, turn two may have been, it wouldn't have been like a total write-off. As it was, Wrath dying so easily uh, just made turn two a terrible turn for me. It was much worse than than turn one for me, even though on turn two I managed to do like some damage or put out some sin tokens. Just the, mm-hmm. the loss of Wrath for so little return was a, a, a major problem. Okay, so then heading into turn three, it sounds like you're going in pretty disadvantaged from turn two. Did you still feel like you had like a solid chance in the game where you felt like you're definitely on your back foot at this point? Yeah, no, I was definitely on my back foot at that point because he, you know, he had been able to score the strategy because Wrath died right in the middle of all of his guys and very early in the turn, you know, cost him really nothing to do it. So yeah, he was able to score strategy. I wasn't, Uh, you know, those are the only points scored that turn, but still... When you're playing a really strong player who also has a really strong list, um, you don't want to be playing from behind. Mm-hmm. And and I I was. So in, in turn three, turn three was another disastrous turn for me. Because again, he has just this point and delete capability. So right. this turn he, he grabbed Lust, who was my leader, pressed a change on her into the middle, swarmed her with his his really good guys, and and would end up killing her that turn which he had to assassinate on her so it, it it's the one point he missed out on not getting uh, both for assassinate but i understand why he just killed her because leaving her alive would have been a bit risky but for all three turns you know the dynamic of the game had been he picks a model he grabs it and then i try my best to extricate it or to keep it alive you know to support it somehow mm-hmm. which i mean maybe you can argue i might have been able to do more if i had just accepted that those models were dead once they were grabbed Mm -hmm. the problem was uh the problem with that was that because i really need to layer these sin tokens to be able to use my mechanics and my attacks have my sin tokens on them and being close to him and having him do things that generate sin tokens scattering to the four winds wasn't really a viable option so i i I felt like i just had to press ahead and try to create a scrum because that's what i had done in the previous game the sort of trial game i played before i'd started a scrum i was winning the scrum and if the game had had a turn six like in second edition i would have had a fair chance to have tied or or maybe even won that game just because i had started to acquire just a really strong maybe even a commanding position on the board by that attritional stage and so i was hoping to kind of duplicate that but to manage it a little bit faster mm-hmm. but because wrath had died in turn two um and because lust would die in turn three i was never able to get to that same position where i felt like i was going to eventually bend the curve to my favor so the rest of the game is actually kind of went in a, a, a similar you know a similar mold he would he would point at people he would grab them in i would I would either support them or frustrate his plans a little bit or, you know, at least make it more difficult for him to try to do what he needed to do. But ultimately, he he had just acquired a really advantageous board state so that even once I had gotten some marker, like even once I, I killed like the mech writer, but I was never able to claim the marker. Mm-hmm. 
I, I would end up getting assassinated on Colette on accident. <laughs> like, I, I attacked her. Uh, I, my goal was to have her buried to get her out of the way, because at the time she was really complicating things. And and I just happened to flip Severe on an egg, so now it was my turn to do it. Uh, and heap a bunch of damage on her and, and uh, uh, get assassinated. Yeah, it, it, it just, it became, I think, a situation where I had just lost too much early, so that by mm. turn three, I wasn't really at a position to... My engine was, I think, producing sin tokens at a f- acceptable rate, but I didn't have enough left to take advantage at that point. Right. Um, so yeah, he would go on to score all the strategy points. He had catch and release because, of course, he has catch and release. Those are just free points against the crossroad seven. Mm. And when you give it to the duet, it's just super free because even if you kill them, you know, you get they replace into mannequins. So, yeah, he, he was able to score everything except the reveal on Assassinate, and I was only able to score the reveal on the Assassinate. Well, sounds like it was definitely a trying experience. The Crossroads 7 are not a joke crew, right? And I think mm-hmm. it would be sort of wrong to play an event like this and to play a joke crew. Crossroads 7, they're a coherent crew. They're not, they're not top tier. Right. And as we've kind of mentioned in previously, crews with henchmen masters really struggle because henchmen just, they lack the dynamism of a master. They don't have master level defenses. They, you know, they, they just do not have that same impact on the board. And so outside of a very few specific instances, I just don't really think henchmen crews work. But, you know, I'd wanted to play the Crossroad 7 for, I think, you know, legitimate reasons that I, you know, we talked about earlier in the episode. So I, I just want to say this. I don't want to be like disrespectful of the format. I'm not playing the Crossroads 7 as a lark, right? I'm playing them because I think they they are a viable but not great option. And I just want to play in an environment that's going to really show me how I need to overcome some of their problems and where, like, you know, maybe in the future I won't run them in every round. But if I want to run them... I'll learn more through this experience where I really can run them and they're a legitimate option for a particular pool and a particular terrain board. So that's what I was really Mm. trying to get out of this. One of the things about this game, so one of the advantages, as I said, the Crossroads 7 have is the unfamiliarity that a lot of people are going to have with them. And it was the same with Ollie. He was not super familiar with them. You know, he, he understood more or less what they did, but he was not super familiar with them. Right. And so that did work to my favor, but we both kind of understood what the dynamic of the game was going to be mm-hmm. from the start. In fact, you know, I, I think I even at the start of the game, I was like, oh yeah, you've got to, you got to assassinate, like based on something that he did. And he's like, well, I mean, maybe, maybe I have this other thing, but yeah, I mean, he totally <laughs> had to assassinate, right? And it's just, you know, it's not like I made some brilliant read, it's that Lust is easy to kill any of the crossroad seven would be easy to kill compared to a master so assassinate Mm. is a much safer pick against the crossroad seven or really pretty much any henchman load crew uh than it would be against a master crew and since we both understood the dynamic that the game was really going to have it came down to who could execute their plan better and obviously Mm. since he's more experienced he's going to have a better edge with that the you know whose crew is stronger there's there's no point in arguing that he had just a much stronger advantage there uh and then luck and i think in in the end you know i've talked about this severe against wrath not to emphasize i had bad luck you know, I, I i can't recall any instance where either of us like really benefited greatly to the to the disadvantage of the other it was more that mm-hmm. i was i was basing my expectations on what i could manage assuming a, you know like a baseline of of events right, right. right and so when when that didn't happen it really threw my calculations off on what I could and couldn't get away with. Mm-hmm. And after the game, you know, unfortunately all he had to, um, all he had to go uh, pretty much, I mean, he had a couple minutes, but uh, he didn't really have time to sit there and, and unpack the game. Um, and I, that's too bad. Cause I would have been in, it's in sort of a detailed view of what he might've done with my crew. But I mean, he actually said that he, you know, he thought I played pretty much as well as could be expected or, you know, that I did pretty much what he would have done. I don't recall whether which of the two he said maybe they're the same thing or maybe to him they're the same thing i mean who am i to say boo the latter definitely sounds more complimentary it's like well i mean look at you like really thought you would have done better 
the score was very lopsided and the game was not really close. I think in turn three, uh, when Lust died, at that point, any hope I had for a tie or a win just went completely out the window because Lust is my main engine to proc out Distracted and my main mo- way of moving his models around. Hmm. And Distracted, I mean, you know how powerful Distracted can be. But when you add it on top of the fact that a lot of my models are manipulative, and then that I have this conceal aura from the effigy, uh, and, mm-hmm. and the board had a fair amount of conceal on it too, Distracted mm-hmm. really provides that final hump that he can't get over. You can focus right. in stone, but you still, like, if you're at three negs, you're still going to be at a neg. So once Lust bit the dust, that was that was it for, for hopes for my game. Now, I was hoping to... To score, um, I was obviously hoping to score more than one point. I, I I had hoped to arrange a leave your mark point, uh, but the duet was just you know exerted just a huge amount of menace over the board, and so I was never a never really felt able to um, to do the activations in such a way that it would both clear out his markers that he was getting for free off Presto Changeo, and that he was just layering over the center point to deny leave your mark. Whether or not I had it, I, I don't know if he had sniffed it out because it's not like I did anything. But um, it's if he can just deny it easily with the mechanical writer or with Presto Changel or whatever, why not, right? So mm-hmm. in order to get leave your mark, I would have needed to do a couple of things, and I was never really able to make enough progress from that. And then the other way I guess I could have scored a point is by maybe being more aggressive to try to grab a marker that was out there, but he had multiple guys with two inch engage who were just covering the the marker. And so it never really worked out. So even though the game was not close at all, uh, and this is not like a game where if we kept playing, I think the advantage would have eventually swung to my side. He would have just kept picking up my models. That being said, you know, I, I did kill, you know, I did kill half the duet. I, I killed the writer. Colette was at half. Um, all of his models except the emissary were, really in not great shape mm-hmm. it's not a game where i got steamrolled uh in terms of the fighting but it or or the board position but it's a game where he just built on advantage after advantage after advantage and it left him with a margin like enough margin to where he could still hold even or win the fight and score his stuff uh and so mm-hmm. you know usually your opportunity to come back is often where your opponent has to spend actions to score their points. Right? Maybe they beat you up a little bit, and that's giving them an edge. But when they go to spend their AP to score, there's often a window for you then to even out the fight. And maybe you're behind in points, but that might give you the advantage to score in subsequent turns. Mm-hmm. In this game, I was never able to bridge that gap enough to where him having to spend stuff to score uh, was going to give me an action efficiency window to come back and part of that again is just that catch and release is one of the schemes and all he has to do is engage one of my people <laughs> you know you know with, with a model of his that isn't colette and uh uh it's 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 just so easy for him right so yeah you know i, I that was a a uh, uh booking that the crossroad seven are not eager to repeat but it since colette is one of the strongest masters I would not be surprised if I see her again in one of the two upcoming rounds. So uh, I guess post game, do you have any thoughts about how like the Crossroads seven stack up against Colette? Do you think that was mainly the scheme pool that was working against you? And you think that in other matchups you might fight more favorably against Colette? Or do you think that there's just um, like her toolkit and her super friends list is so powerful, no matter what, like you'd be kind of fighting your way into the game? Yeah, I think Colette Super Friends is always going to have a pretty big advantage against the Crossroad 7. Um, I think into this pool, the Crossroad 7 are always going to kind of struggle, almost no matter who they're... If Catch and Release is in the pool, which, I mean, uh, the way these these TOs make scheme pools, they try to make sure it's every scheme appears at least once. So you know you're going to mm-hmm. see Catch and Release at some point. But it's it's almost free points for your opponent. I mean, you're almost two points down at the start of the game and that is just a really tough position to be in right i feel that like if we reversed cruise right because ollie's a better player than me but if we Mm -hmm. reverse cruise i feel like i probably you know i would probably win that game with the colette super friends list Mm -hmm. just given the the situation so even if i were just playing myself 
I would expect the Colette list to win an overwhelming number of times. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, <laughs> considering the scheme for and you just like, well, this seems like a crossroads sevens kind of tournament. Well, you know, that's the thing about Colette, right? If you could only hire keyword models and Colette had a performer crew, Catcher releasing into the middle of, of her crew is not nearly as dangerous. I mean, it's still, you know, still got the duet or Cassandra or Carlos or, um, you know, soon the Explore Society guy. So I, I'm not saying that you can't kill a model uh, with the performer crew. You definitely can. But it's nowhere mm. near the same as having the mech rider and, you know, the emissary or a mech arachnid or steam arachnid swarm or, you know, whatever other murder bot you want to bring. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Colette's, a lot of people are complaining about Colette. Uh, right now on on the forums and you know she's definitely top tier she might be the best master in the game and she's almost certainly going to get nerfed which is you know it's hard to argue against that even though i played her exclusively in 2e and i've always had a soft spot for her so i don't really want to see her get nerfed but i feel like she's going to get nerfed on the basis of of you know what's really not her fault right like the versatile or the way the crew building works in the game uh, speaks to an issue that goes far beyond her and that her kit is i think perfectly acceptable if she were only able to hire the models that she was kind of intended uh to play with yeah i can see that though that that probably goes into a whole another discussion <laughs> that's not really within the scope of this episode yeah I, I i am a little worried about what i would do if i faced colette again in this event so i guess you don't have any like huge takeaway as far as like how you would like approach the next game because it sounds like after the first trial game yeah with Collide, you're like all right if i get my sin engine going a bit earlier i might have a chance but now it just kind of sounds like you're going to kind of have to like um i don't know just like have huge outplays or rely on like some very niche things to try and like maybe edge out a win against a collect crew well so here's the thing so turn one uh, and, and you'll be familiar with this right Turn one, when you're playing against, you know, someone who has a lot of threats on the board, you often try to play pretty cagey, right? Like, you walk and focus, a lot of your guys are, you know, they're behind terrain, they're not in line of sight or whatever, and even though you accept that it's kind of impossible to prevent an attack from anywhere on the whole board, for the most part, turn one, you're able to uh, minimize your risk, your risk profile pretty well. And so uh, part of that is not just charging forward like a madman, right? That's why a lot of turn one actions are these kind of like walk and focus actions, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's my experience. I've seen you play at the store, so I've seen you play similarly. But if you if you disagree, I mean, let me know. No, no. I mean, that, that seems what to do when you're playing against someone you think has like superior firepower. You just want to move around and hopefully just split it up or snipe one of their guys to give yourself some kind of advantage. Yeah. Now, the thing is, with the Mech Rider, with Ride With Me, with, um, you know, Colette having two walks and a Presto Changeo, the reality is, uh, unless you're huddled, like, way in the corner of your map or the terrain is really blocking out huge sections of line of sight, she is going to be able to pull someone if you, if, if you leave your deployment zone. She just has a huge range over the board. So maybe what I should do is I should accept that someone is going to get grabbed and just do kind of like a crazy bayonet charge, <laughs> right? Like instead of turn one, trying to like walk and focus and be a little cagey about who who she can grab and, and who she can't, maybe I should just throw the crossroad seven forward and that way when someone does get pulled, they're going to be that much closer to be able to support them. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. maybe that would be a better approach. I, I am in no way claiming that I played this game perfectly. Maybe Ollie was just being gracious by saying that he thought, you know, I, I played I, I played the crew about as well as, as he thinks could reasonably be expected. Uh, you know, maybe it's just being nice. But even if even if that's really what he thinks, maybe it is the case that in this particular matchup, I might be better off throwing caution to the wind and playing more aggressively, which, as you know, isn't really my style. But... <laughs> we'll see <laughs> well i mean you know if you're there's gonna be a time to adapt it's gonna be in this tournament right yeah i mean no well, <laughs> no <laughs> screw that so uh this is you know now that we have like this podcast <laughs> i feel like i want to do well yeah just because i now ollie as it happens doesn't listen to podcasts and i mean uh 
you know, let, let's face it, I, it's not like he's really missing all that much, but um, <laughs> I don't know if I, 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 because there is maybe this tendency to only value people's opinions if they seem proficient. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder, like, oh, geez, if I just get curb stomped all three rounds, uh, maybe we'll lose, uh, we'll lose our listenership and our our very sparse Patreon backer roster list or something. Oh, so that's why you have the step with the Crossroads 7, where you're like, hey, you know, they're pretty good, but they're not top tier. <laughs> so, you know, like, I'm just testing this out, guys. Don't worry about it. If I get stomped, it's just because I wasn't bringing my A game. I wanted to test and see if these guys had legs. <laughs> that is one of the things that kind of turns me off about uh, tournaments and, and Vassal in general, or, or or kind of playing, playing you know, open field, playing against anyone. Is it... So, I, I've heard it frequently said that Malfo is the best balanced war game or, you know, really balanced war game. And it is. I, I feel like Malfo's balance is very good, especially relative to other titles that exist. Like, you know, you and I have groused enough about 40k mm. and balance and stuff. So, no, I think Malfo is balanced well. But the problem is, when you have a game that's well balanced, the outliers have a disproportionate impact. Mm-hmm. You know, Some people say in Malfo, everything's broken, so nothing's broken. But that's not true. You have a large middle of the pack where yeah there might be like variation and and there is matchup specific stuff but for the most part you know of the 50 something masters not counting explorer society because you know i was not really we haven't seen them enough yet but not counting explorer society you know of the 50 something masters or the 40 you know high 40s how many there are a solid block of like 35 or you know 30 or 35 are all reasonably competitive with each other and then you've got, you know, a couple of trash masters who are just worse. That 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 doesn't mean that they can't win. They're just behind the eight ball. And then you have a couple that are stronger, either because they themselves are really great or because of the way the crew hiring works or because of both. Mm-hmm. And so at both the top and the bottom, those differences, in my opinion, are magnified. And as a result, what you see is that the bottom tier stuff which might be competitive in a casual sense, you really can't play when every when you have to expect to see the top-level stuff every game. And that's what you really have to expect, and that's what people should expect at these tournaments. Right? Like you come mm-hmm. to a tournament, you should be coming to a tournament to win. And even though I'm playing Crossroads 7, I'm coming to win. I'm never not trying to win the game. But I just, I don't want to play Colette Super Friends. Mm-hmm. You know, I did it in second. I, in fact, even in second, I tried my best to resist it. You know, I would still hire Angelica and you know <laughs> stuff like that. And people, people would know it's stupid, and it was stupid. And you know, I did do Super Friends as well. But it, if if there was not variability in what you saw on the board, Malifo, what I enjoy about Malifo, I would would, would kind of evaporate. So mm-hmm. that's probably why I'm pretty hesitant to kind of enter these tournaments because I do kind of feel that. Maybe not a requirement of playing in these tournaments, but an expectation of playing in these tournaments is that you're going to play kind of top flight stuff. Because, you know, there is an argument to be made that this is kind of unfair to everyone else in the tournament, right? All you got to play against the Crossroads 7, other people didn't. So for the... Now, no matter what, he's going to be podium hunting, right? You know, there's there's going to be... There's a group of players who are going to be at the top, who are going to be podium hunting. And in a way, he gets a leg up against against his his peer competitors right and and is that fair to the you know the participants at large so now you're saying you're ruining the sanctity of the tournament and the podium standings yeah well i mean i don't know if i'd say ruining but i do (laughs) (laughs) you you know it's it's i think it is a valid discussion to have you know this kind of the social compact of of the format of the game just like if you go if i were to run colette super friends at our, our kind of local meta mm-hmm. and just curb stomp the newer players that we teach after a demo. That mm-hmm. is way outside what anyone would reasonably expect to experience at that game at, at that game store at that night, right? Right, right. Yeah, I go back to this because I see on the forums, you know, people use like a you've probably seen it like W A A C win at all cost. Uh, like are you familiar with that? Yeah, 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 I've seen that. Yeah, now. yeah, like people use that as an insult for a particular kind of player. Uh-huh. And I, I think it kind of gets, you know, people throw competitive to mean unpleasant when in reality I think competitive means trying your best to win. And there can be pleasant mm-hmm. competitive players and there can be unpleasant 
thematic players. And 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 so, you know, I don't think these tournaments are win at all costs by any means, but I also think part of participating in these tournaments is the expectation that you have a competitive mindset about the the game itself, or at least at least the game that you're playing. And I, I mean that particular session. I, I don't necessarily mean being competitive about Malifaux in general. Mm-hmm. Even if you have kind of a lax, like, uh, yeah, I, I don't really care about Malifaux that much. If you can't bring yourself to care about the results of the game at the table, maybe turns aren't really the right setting for you. Or you really do have to ask yourself if you're upholding your responsibilities uh, to the rest of the roster at that point. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I, I always felt like that was kind of like a weird thing. And it's the idea that someone that's, you know, trying to win using the most effective strategy is somehow a bad person and that they should somehow understand the relative power level they should be aiming for instead of the actual power level available to them. Right. Well, and I think part of it actually is kind of misreading the the cues that govern the play environment that they're in. A lot of times these mm. kind of win-at-all-cost criticisms come because you know at, at the store at 40k i'm playing my you know sort of normal narrative sisters list and he has his curb stomp tournament primaris list right and he just doesn't really understand that the casual 40k night at the store is you know people are playing kind of these b level lists uh, and he plays an a level list right and and so the odd person out is the one that ends up getting criticized. If you're playing higher than the meta, everyone else in the meta calls you at all costs. And if you're playing lower at the meta, everyone in the meta calls you like a dirty casual or, or whatever, the, <laughs> whatever the reverse insult is, because casual isn't really seen as an insult by the people who consider themselves casual. In fact, they hold it up as a badge of honor. Like, oh, uh, yeah, I'm just a, you know, I'm a casual and you take this game way too seriously. And the reality is I think the dynamic is just very different and, Either person can be the jerk, is I guess what I'm trying to say. If you are at a meta where everyone is playing the A-lists, and you show up with your your C-list, and neither of you got a fun game, I think the rest of the group is justified in thinking that you're the one outside the norm. I know we've talked about this a little bit before, but yeah, it's all about having like the right expectations and kind of understanding you know, what people are looking for in the game. And it's like, yeah, if you want to play a competitive game, that's fine. I I guess it's just more of like a misnomer. Like we don't really have the correct vocabulary for it. You know, it's like win at all costs or like competitive mindset. Like it's fine, but it's just, that's usually coupled with someone having just like a shitty ass attitude. Right. So I guess, you know, I just really want to draw a line under the fact that I understand the Crossroads 7 is in top flight and maybe you know, my responsibility is to bring a top flight crew to this, but I am bringing them legitimately. I'm bringing them to win. I'm playing them the hardest that I can. Uh, and, you know, win or lose, my personal goal might be that I really just want to learn more about using the crew against, like, really stiff, stiff competition. But I do feel it's my obligation, you know, to be doing the best that I can. And I don't think that you have to feel bad or ashamed at all to admit that you're trying uh, within the context of the game, you know, people who kind of use this, oh, well, I'm not really trying, you know, mentality or, or excuse, you know, I, I, I've, I've always felt that they, they really don't have anything to brag about. I, I, I don't understand why people see that as a positive. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel like as long as, you know, you're trying to win or you're taking a crew that you think has some play or you want to see if they have any play at all at a tournament level because you know there's so many things that we like talk about or theory phones like oh i think this would be good or this might be strong but then you know like for casual play at your local game store it's like sure maybe it works great but like how does it actually stack up against people that are running clutch super friends or other strong lists or like people that are like digging through all these cars and all these combinations does it have any play against these stronger lists or against these veteran opponents yeah, I would agree, and and you know, I I don't really want to repeat myself, but I will. Having said that, <laughs> my expectation uh, after playing after playing in this tournament and sample size of three games is not a lot, right? So I might need to play a couple more, maybe I will in the future uh, with the Crossroads Seven. But my expectation is that there are pools that they can play into, and that there are matchups that they can play into, and that there are some matchups that are just terrible for them, and some pools that are terrible for them, and some combinations of the two that are just like, you should just not play them. And so I feel like I'm gaining a lot of value personally 
by by trying to learn that here. And so if I can if I can come away with a better sense of when they should be played, I will have counted it as a personal success in terms of what I was trying to achieve. If other people come away from the game feeling like, you know, even if they won, feeling like, you know, that I was a credible opponent, that I, I made them think at certain points and that they couldn't just do it on autopilot or have, have their, their six-year-old kid brother do it or whatever. Um, as long as they felt like it was a legitimate game, then I think I will have, you know, held up my end of the bargain. So I know you're not on the roster for, for this event. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I guess what are your thoughts of participating in a future one? Because you play in the same meta I do. You see the same shrinking opponent pool, you know, because of uh, maybe people are doing other games at the moment or maybe uh, COVID or whatever. So are any of the things I've said about why I wanted to participate in this event resonating with you? Or do you just not think that this is just really something that you would be up for? I could see it. I think the thing for me is that what I enjoy is like testing certain ideas and things like that. And I haven't, I don't have something in mind that I really want to test right now, where I don't feel like I even have put in the basic amount of reps to learn a crew or a keyword well enough that it's even worth bringing it to a tournament to bring it to a tournament to actually test out the ideas yet. So maybe once I latch onto that, I could jump into one of these tournaments. I can see that. I know they are having another one in January. There's a, a whole like Vassal <laughs> World series or like different people are running different events, I think, but uh, they, they're mm-hmm. strung together in some kind of loose confederacy. And I've, I've even thought about maybe running one of the events, mostly because all the events I've seen thus far have the same hiring rules, you, you know, declare mm-hmm. faction, single, single masters only. And I would maybe be interested in, in having a double masters event or even a dead man's hand event. And just kind of opening it up a bit and seeing some different things. So yeah, maybe uh, maybe that's something that we might try to arrange in the future. But I would definitely encourage you to do it. I don't think that you, you know, I I, th- I think you've definitely played enough. One of the things we've talked about in the past, in fact, is is that because you haven't really wanted to commit to a faction, you haven't really bought the versals for a faction. <laughs> so you've mostly just played in keyword, and you're still a really strong opponent, and you're still you know you still get good results even with the kind of self-imposed handicap of your limited model pool and vassal would just totally remove that restriction and and so you know the time commitment is is pretty modest it's uh not really that hard to find the time for one game in a week and that's all these tournaments ask of you so i would mm-hmm. definitely suggest that you maybe look at this january or you know some other time in in 2021 uh and consider joining in We'll see. It's I still haven't like gotten past like the actual limit because I thought I was gonna play like Arcanist for a while, and then now I'm like on to Ten Thunders. So we'll see. And I think I originally started with Guild. Uh-huh. That was my original plan. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see if this sticks. What about Explorer Society? Are they gonna tempt you at all? I mean, English Ivan does look really cool. <laughs> All right, yeah, so I, I guess you <laughs> sufficiently derailed from the topic again. Um, did you have any final thoughts on, like, the game you played or the tournament or December foe in general that you want to say before we kind of sign off? No, I mean, I would just like to give a shout out to Ollie. Um, I mean, he doesn't know that because he won't, you know, he doesn't listen to the podcast, but uh, maybe it'll get to him through the grapevine. He was a, a fun, a gracious player. We had a good game. You know, there were a couple of moments for each of us where, you know, if if we had been dicks, we maybe could have gotten a bit of an advantage, but it wouldn't have been as fun of a game. And ultimately, that's what you want, right? You, the number one rule in Malifaux, you know, or any game, should be to have fun. And being a a good opponent, and we have a whole episode about that. I don't know at the time of this recording if it's been released yet or if we're moving this in, in front of it. Uh, so if you haven't, can't keep putting timestamps in the recording, man. It's gonna make it so much harder. <laughs> if you if you haven't if you haven't heard our episode yet because it's not out yet, well then you got something to look forward to. And if you have heard it already, then you know what we're talking about. But yeah, I just I had a a good time getting to play with Ollie. He was um, a very strong opponent. He thoroughly uh, deserved the win, and I just appreciate the opportunity to play into a really strong master with a really strong player and see some things about the Crossroad Seven and. Uh, maybe have another approach to try next time all right cool well thanks for your insights on playing crossroads 7 looking forward to seeing how you fare in the rest of the tournament and what your thoughts are on the crossroads 7 after the tournament and you know whether you're actually going to take them pool or just write them off as another like trash tier master 
I will never write them off. I've always loved them. Uh, I love all this cross. I love all this cross factional stuff. So even if they just become relegated to kind of casual Malifaux, that's okay. The Swamp Fiends Discord, they like to say that they're full of snowflakes. You know, they're they're full of people who just want to try weird lists. So even if I can only play the Crossroad 7 against uh, those kinds of uh, lists, I'll still find the time to put them on the board, whether it's uh, physical or virtual. All right, all right. Sounds good. Maybe maybe we'll get around to painting them at some point too. <laughs> Let's not get crazy. <laughs> All right. Well, to everyone that's listened to this episode, thank you very much. And as always, you can support us via our Patreon or PayPal, right? Patreon and PayPal. Uh, The links will be in the show notes below. And yeah, I think that's it for this episode. So thank you all for listening and have a nice night. Yep. Thank you, everyone.